Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Would you join me as we ask the Lord to guide our time in prayer? Once again, Father, as we approach your throne today, we thank you that you are sovereign over us as we just sang about. We thank you that we can put our confidence in the King who sits on the throne, who rules and reigns in this world. Regardless of how we feel at a given moment, regardless of what we see with our eyes, Lord, may our hearts resonate with the the truth about who you are. May we trust you. We ask that today as we have opened your word, you will teach us the truth. That we will believe the truth. That we will apply the truth. And that as a result, you will bring forth your peace into our lives. And we will walk through whatever circumstances we find ourselves in with an overwhelming sense of your presence and your peace that will guard us, that will guide us, that will allow us to reflect a testimony of Christ to a watching world. Thank you. We commit this time to you. Guide us into all the truth and be our teacher today. In Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, in an issue of AARP Bulletin, by, by the way, I don't get that personally, but uh, apparently in, in there, they asked the readers to respond to the question, what's your strategy for coping with stress? The answers range from eat a chocolate chip cookie to have a stiff drink. <clears throat> One particular individual from Minnesota, offered his own unique solution. He said, every January 1st, I give my wife a dollar, and she worries about everything for both of us. And then he went on to say, and if someone else wants to be free from worry, they can also send her a dollar. Now, you could do that if you want, or you could experience the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension to guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Which sounds like a whole lot better prospect. In our text, as we began looking last week here in chapter 4, verses 4 through 9, we see this peace being promised by God in verse 7. But as I said last week, there are six commands, imperatives that surround this promise. And I believe that the reason for that is because God is saying to us, I will keep my promise. I will do my part if you do yours. That is, if you will 
do what I tell you to do, i.e. keep these six commands, and I will give you this peace, this peace that is um, that surpasses all comprehension. This peace that will guard your heart and mind in Christ from worry, anxiety, and fear. This peace that's powerful because it's the peace of God. And not only that, but he says at the end of verse 9, I, the God of peace, will be with you. What an incredible promise as we walk through the journey of life. But he says, you need to do your part. And so this morning we're going to begin looking at what our part is by looking at the first of these two commands. These are relational commands. I'm going to read the whole passage from 4 through 9, again, to remind us of the context and, and what all he's saying here. We're going to focus our attention on verses 4 and 5. Apostle Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say, rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's anything excellent and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul writes, practice these things and the God of peace shall be with you. So we want to look today at these first two commands. They are commands that deal with relationships. Relationship first with God and relationship secondly with other people. Proper relationships Prepare us to experience this peace that God wants to give us. Cultivating proper relationships, doing our part in this, will prepare us to experience God's peace in our lives. The first of these two commands, rejoice in the Lord always. Let your joy be in the Lord, in other words. Now, this is not some unrealistic um, grin and bear it, right? This isn't uh, put on a happy face, but on the inside, you're still filled with, filled with all kinds of chaos. This isn't a fake it till you make it kind of thing. I'm sure we've all been around people who, who are over the top in their expression of this, right? And everything is... Praise the Lord. And it's just, roar. It's just, just, and it's like, what, you know, and, you, and you, you know them well enough to know that's not how they live their life, but that's how they're projecting things. This, this is not what this is talking about. It's talking about having a, a deep down confidence that God's in control of everything. And he is working for the good of his people and the glory of his name. In the midst 
of the circumstances that you and I are walking through. No matter how we feel at any given moment, there's a deep down sense that God is in control and that's what gives you peace. Your joy is there. He tells us when we're to put our joy in the Lord. He says, rejoice in the Lord when? Always. The word always means at all times and in every situation. So is there any situation or any time that you and I find ourselves in which this does not apply? Yes or no? No. Thank you, one person. <laughs> right? I, we are to let our joy be in the Lord Always. Always. Now Paul knows this is difficult, so he repeats himself. Just in case we gloss over it or forget or, or think, well, maybe, maybe that's not applying to me. No, again I will say, rejoice. Let your joy be in the Lord. Two practical suggestions to keep in mind in order to apply this. One, our joy is not dependent on our circumstances. We need to remember that. Because we forget that and we try to find joy in our situations, in our circumstances. Now feelings aren't wrong. They just can't be trusted. We experience emotion. We experience feeling. They just can't be trusted. Now, all you have to do is just open your ears and listen because what you hear from the world, you just take the opposite and you know that's the truth. The world says, trust your heart. And what that means is, trust your feelings. What does the Word of God say? Proverbs 28, 26 says, he who trusts his own heart is a fool. So, what are you going to believe? The world that says, oh, trust your heart. Or are you going to believe God at his word? It says those who trust their heart is a fool. See, our feelings will not always be reliable. Now, understand also, it's not wrong to enjoy things. All things are given for our enjoyment in this world, right? We, f we find enjoyment, happiness in circumstances. We find enjoyment and happiness sometimes in stuff, uh, in relationships that we're in. But understand that stuff wears out, circumstances change, and people will let us down. So do not fix your, your hope and your joy in this stuff, or even in people. Our joy is not dependent on this stuff. My friend uh, Dick Burr, who some of you know because he, he, he was here many years ago uh, doing our prayer conferences for us, um, he's now with the Lord. But in his book, Developing Your Secret Closet of Prayer, he has some really, I think, poignant quotes. And one of those is that we need to fix our gaze on Christ and only glance at our circumstances. And this is really hard to do. 
our natural tendency in our flesh is to gaze upon our circumstances and only glance up once in a while at God. And he is saying, and I think it's biblically correct, we've got to fix our gaze on Jesus Christ and only merely glance once in a while at our circumstances. It's like when you're driving in a car. Right? You're driving, your gaze is on the road in front of you. Maybe you'll glance once in a while around at things, uh, but you are going to be fixed on the road or you're going to be in trouble. Right? What happens if you get that backwards? If you're, if you're gazing on your cell phone or, or what's going on around you and you only merely glance at the road once in a while, it's only a matter of time before you get yourself in trouble. It's hard enough when we just glance away for a second. It only takes a second. Well, the same is true in our life. If we are fixated on our problems, our situations, and we're only every once in a while looking at, at Christ or looking to His Word, then we're going to get ourselves in real trouble. So we fix our gaze upon Christ, upon his, the truth of His Word. And we keep our eyes on the one who is truly in charge of all things. And we keep our heart fixed there and have our confidence set on him who's in charge of all things. And we believe that with all of our heart. And we live with that in mind. Then we glance at our circumstance and we realize, okay, this is not good, but he is. This is not working out the way I want. I'm out of control, but he's in control. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen, but he does. And I don't have a plan for this, but he does. And I trust him. And when that happens, there's a sense of peace that comes over us. So if our joy is not dependent on our circumstances, where is it? Our joy is found in abiding in Christ. Our joy is found in abiding in Christ. Christ. Now, keep your finger in Philippians. I want you to turn to John chapter 15 because Jesus talks about this as He's speaking with His disciples the night before He is crucified. In this section that's referred to as the, the upper room discourse. Matthew, Mark, and Luke in their gospel accounts talk about what, a little bit of what happened in the upper room the night before Jesus was crucified. But they, they give a few facts and they tell us a few things. But John goes several chapters, chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. We have this dialogue, mostly Jesus speaking. But what Jesus was telling his disciples the very night before he was crucified, some of these critically important instructions at the end of his time with them, here on earth. And here we find him giving this instruction about abiding. Now the immediate context is they have, they've just finished their time in the upper room. And they're now walking from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would pray that prayer, not my will but yours be done. They're on their way because at the very end of chapter 14, he tells them, arise, let us go from here. And so... You can see the picture. They're on their way from this upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, probably passing by a vineyard. And Jesus sees this vineyard, and it's a perfect object lesson. 
And so he says to his disciples, I am the true vine, verse 1, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it might bear more fruit. He's probably touching the vine. He's probably saying, lifting it up and saying, see, this branch doesn't bear any fruit. The vine dresser is going to remove that. But see, these ones that he's going to prune them so they bear more fruit. You're already clean, verse 3, because the word which I've spoken to you. But abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. I'm sure there were probably a few branches that had been lopped off from the vine, laying there, probably drying up, unable to bear fruit, dying, if not already dead. What a great object lesson. If you don't abide in me, this is what's going to happen. You're going to dry up. You can do nothing. And he goes on, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified. By this is my Father glorified. How many times have we prayed, Lord, be glorified in my life? How do we know? How, what are we supposed to do? Well, he tells us that you bear much fruit. When we bear much fruit, that brings glory to the Father. How are we going to bear much fruit? We've got to abide in the vine. When we abide in the vine, we bear much fruit. When we bear much fruit, we glorify the Father. So when you pray, Father, be glorified, understand you have a part in this, to abide in Christ, and He will do His part. And so He says, and so you prove to be my disciples. When we bear fruit, the evidence of our life, which, which is Christ in us, bearing out the fruit, and people see it, they, it proves that we are a disciple of Jesus. Verse 9, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Verse 11. These things I've spoken to you, that what? That my joy may be in you, and your joy may be made full. We've got to find our joy by, in Christ. right? His joy in us. Our joy made full. How do we do that? By abiding in Christ. He says, abide in me and my words abide in you. So this book has to get in us. We've got to be in the Word of God and let the Word of God get in us. We've got to abide there. And then he says, abide in my love. How do we do that? By keeping His commandments. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. So we abide in Christ. By being in His Word, letting His Word speak into our lives, and then doing what His Word says in obedience to Him, as we do that, these things are completed. The joy is in us, and our joy is made full. We have peace in the midst of the storm. It's about putting Jesus in the proper place he deserves. He is the Prince of Peace. 
And so we ought to give the Prince of Peace first place in our life, and then His peace will rule our hearts rather than anxiety. We've got to understand who He is, and then put Him in His proper place in our life. I love A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, in the very first chapter. I mean, he sets things up right. And I would recommend that book to you. Uh, short chapters, but it just they're just packed with so much. You almost have to just read one paragraph and just sit and think about it for a while. But here's what, let me read a couple of the first few paragraphs of the first chapter and tell you why we must think rightly about God. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. History of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts about God. For this reason... The gravest question before the church is always God Himself. And the most portentous fact about man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend to, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the contemporary Christians that compose the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about Him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. Were we able to extract from any man or woman in this case a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that person. We must have a proper understanding of God. And we will only have that if we are in His Word consistently. If the only time we're in the Word of God is when we show up on Sunday, we will not have a proper understanding of God. Our view of God will be dependent upon our circumstances. We must renew our minds through the Word of God every day or consistently so that we combat the, the things that we are experiencing. When you experience something hard, your natural reaction is to think that God is harsh or God doesn't care, God doesn't love me, God isn't in control. That's are the things we naturally go to. We must go back to the Word, believe God at His Word, and let the Word inform us so that we believe the right things about God. So we can trust Him for who He is. We might also go on the opposite way and believe, well, God is always going to protect me from every harm in this world. Then you go to the Word and you realize, no, He let some of His choicest servants experience difficult things. So we have a false sense of what God will do and God never promised to. And then we get disappointed with God. And we had a wrong view of God. We must be in the Word and understand. That's why we have to abide in Christ so that He, through His Word, is nourishing us and allowing us then to bear fruit in our lives. We have an understanding of who He is. And this is why it's so important that we, that we are part of a community of faith. Because in that community, 
We are also encouraging each other to be in the Word. We're encouraging each other in the things of God. And when we gather together, we're, we're focusing on the Word of God. The preaching of the Word of God must be, the Word must be central to the preaching. If it isn't, then it's just a person's perspective. Let me tell you, you don't want my perspective. You probably understand things better if we're going to go just by natural stuff. We need to know what God says, right? We need to know what God's Word says. And when we sing, our songs need to be centered in the Word of God. We work hard to pick songs that have a biblical, that, that speak biblically, that have the theologically correct as best we can understand these things. And, but they, are, they, they derive from biblical truths. So that when we're singing, we're singing about God or we're singing to God about who He is and what He's done. We're, we're learning things about God as we're singing to God and praising Him. Praise is absolutely essential. If we're to keep a proper understanding of God and praise that is rooted in the Word of God, few years back, probably several now, um, I, I did a study through the Bible on this whole issue of praise. And there are a few things that, that stood out to me, and I'm not going to go into all this, but just give you a couple things that, that I discovered as I looked at, at praise throughout the Bible. First of all, typically it is expressed outwardly. Throughout the Bible, praise typically is expressed outwardly. It's not something we just have in our heart. It's expressed, whether in, in, in speaking or in singing, giving thanks, playing an instrument. It isn't always verbal. It could be playing an instrument in response as a praise to God. But it's typically expressed outwardly. Secondly, typically is expressed corporately. That is, with people together people of God gathered. That isn't to say that we don't ever express praise personally by ourselves. No, but typically throughout the Bible it is expressed as the people of God were together. And thirdly, typically it is prompted by truth. There was some truth. Either something happened where God blessed them in some way. God gave them a victory. God did this. He relieved them of, of their um, of consequences, whatever it is, and there was an ex expression uh, in response to that wonderful truth to God by the people of God. So from that, I developed a simple definition of praise. It's this. Praise is an outward expression directed toward God by the people of God in response to the Word of God. It is simply an expression, right, outwardly to God by the people of God in response to the Word of God. That's what we do every time we sing it together in church. We sing. That's what we're doing. It helps us to focus our attention upon God, not on our situation, on who God is. Really, who His Word says rather than something we might come up with on our own. So we need to let our joy be in the Lord. Not 
dependent on our circumstances, but as we abide in Christ. The second command, let your forbearing spirit be known to all. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all. The word that's used here, forbearance, or gentle, there's a lot of, lot of translations use different words, and, and I'm going to share with you many of them, because it's a very rich word. And no single English word can convey that. And so one commentator said, uh, as a result, commentators and Bible versions vary widely in how they render it. Here's some examples. Sweet reasonableness, generosity, goodwill, friendliness magnanimity, I don't even use that word typically, charity toward the faults of others, mercy toward the failures of others, leniency, big-heartedness, moderation, forbearance, and gentleness are some of the attempts to capture the rich meaning of this word. Perhaps the best corresponding English word is graciousness. The graciousness of humility, the humble graciousness that produces the patience to endure injustice, disgrace, and mistreatment without retaliation, bitterness, or vengeance. Graciousness. And look at what he says. He doesn't just say, let that be who you are inside. He said, let it come out. Let it be known. The word known here means um, uh, knowledge gained by experience. So in other words, what he's saying is, <laughs> don't keep this graciousness, this sweet reasonableness, this forbearance inside. Let it come out so that others experience it when they're in their, your presence. So that when they walk away from a time with you, they know. That's a, that's a person who has grace. And hopefully they know that, that grace has come because you're abiding in Jesus. And they, they experience the grace that comes from God in our life after spending time with us. As opposed to walking away and saying, man, what a jerk. Everything's about them. I never, you know, there's nothing, you know, I don't feel anything positive when I spend time with that person. I just walk away feeling negative. Because all they talk about is negative stuff, or they always, it's all about them all the time. It's never, never once do they ask how things are going with you. Never once is there any friendliness, any kindness, any grace that comes out of their life. It's just all about them. It's all about negativity. It's all about blah, blah, blah. You walk away, and you, you're not built up. You're not... Says, and this is a command. Let that be known. Let it come out of your life. It has to be there before it comes out. So how do you get it? By abiding in Jesus. By letting our joy be found in the Lord. Now understand that even though these are commands and this is our part, understand, go back to chapter 2 and realize what Paul said. He said, um, work out your salvation, right, with fear and trembling, and then he says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Understand, God is working in us. As we do our part to work this stuff out, we've been saved by grace through faith, and now we are working out this, this uh, 
this gift God has given in our daily life and how we live, it is God who's working it out in our life, and we're participating with him. So this isn't just about you and I pulling ourselves up from our bootstraps and, and doing all the work. This is about abiding in Christ, letting him work in us, letting his life flow out of us, and it produces these things. And he says, let it be known. To who? To all men, believer and unbeliever alike. People you like, people you don't like. couple practical suggestions that come right out of the Word of God that will help us to do this. One, let someone else have their way. Another way to put it is you don't always have to have it your way all the time. It doesn't always have to be about you. One commentator said this, this forbearing person does not insist on his or her own rights or privileges. He or she is considered and gentle toward others. He says, of course, there is a time to stand for what's right. Forbearing person is not spineless, but selfless. You understand the difference? We stand for what's right, but we don't have to have it our way. This quality is the opposite of the spirit of contention and self-seeking that Paul alluded to earlier in the text. Let someone else have their own way. Let me share with you a couple of scriptures that I think to me, help put this all together. Proverbs 21.2 says, Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. And I've shared this with you before, so um, if, if, if you're sick of hearing this, just bear with me. But I, I think it's so important that we keep these things, the, all this together. Every man's way is right in his own eyes. What that tells me is that every one of us think we're right. We all think our perspective's right. There's just some of us who think that we're the only ones who really are. There's probably more of us than we want to admit, right? We think we're right. We think our perspective is right. We think the way we view life, the way we think about things is right. But he says the Lord weighs the heart. Now, couple that with Proverbs 14, 12, which says there's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Uh-oh. <laughs> I think I'm right. But Proverbs says, I think I'm right, but it may be I'm leading, it's, it's going toward a, a way of death. That should stop me in my tracks and say, hold on here. Hey, think about this for a minute. And you go to the book of Judges and you find this, this period of time when Israel forsook God and they went after the idols of the people in the land. And they went through these sin cycles. And they're like addictive cycles. If you follow through the whole book, you realize there's these, these cycles of sin. They sin and then they, they, uh, God brings consequences. And then as a result of the consequences, they cry out to God. And God raises up a deliverer to deliver them from the consequences. And they have a period of rest. And then once that deliverer, that judge dies, they go back into it. And this is the way uh, um, addictive cycles are. We act out. We feel bad about it. We cry out to God. Then we have a period of relief. Right? We're forgiven and we have a period of relief and then we go right back into it again. And it's over and over and over and over again. This is what was going on in the nation of Israel. And at the end of the book, after it talks about these incredibly dark stories like, like uh, a man who, who th turned his concubine out 
to the, the, the evil men in the city um, so that they could abuse her and do whatever they wanted to her. And then he came out the next day and found her lying dead on the doorstep. He picks her up, chops her into 12 pieces, and sends a piece to each tribe in Israel. Say, that's in the Bible? Yeah. That's God's people did that. That's what was going on in this time. That's the kind of darkness that was happening. And then the end of the book, it says this. There's no king in the land. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Uh-oh. Every man's way is right in his own eyes. But when every man does what's right in his own eyes, all hell breaks loose. And then one more verse. Proverbs 26, 12 says, after a whole list, in Proverbs 26, a whole list of verses that talk about how bad the fool is, it says, you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool. If this does not help us to stop and say, wait a minute here, I think I'm right. In fact, I know I'm right. But, I should at least seek some godly counsel should at least see what the Word of God says about this. I should be cautious because I might, there's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. If, if, if everyone like, was like me and they just did what was right in their own eyes, things would not be good. And there's more hope for a fool, which there isn't much hope in the Scripture for a fool. There's more hope for a fool than for me. Got to understand this. This will help us then when we're in relationships with other people and we don't agree, we think we're right inside to let this sweet reasonableness, this grace flow out of our life because we say, I don't have to open my mouth and say what's in my mind right now. I don't have to give advice in this situation that hasn't been asked of me. I don't have to insert myself into this situation. Let me just step back. If I'm asked, I can give my opinion. If, if I'm invited into this, I want to do so, but I want to do so prayerfully. I want to make sure that, that I'm entering into this with the right perspective, that I might gain wisdom. And when I need help, I'm going to ask, get some perspective. I'm going to follow someone else's, but I want to at least hear what somebody who knows the Word, and I want to seek all this. It just makes sense. Biblically. And then the second principle is exercise the golden rule. Jesus in His Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 says, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Treat people the way you want to be treated. That's the golden rule biblically. The world's philosophy is do to others before they do to you. I'm going to get you before you get me. Or the other side of that is, I'll do unto you so that you will do unto me. Right? See that motivation? I'll do something nice for you because I'm expecting you to do something. That's not the golden rule biblically. You treat people the way you would want to be treated if you were in their situation. Not expecting them to treat you. You do it because it's the right thing. And you honor Christ in that. Another golden rule I've heard 
couple different times from people, and, and there's some truth to it in this world, and that is, he who has the most gold rules. That may be true in the world in which we live, but we don't live for this world. And so that should not be the philosophy we strive to live by. And then he concludes this section, this verse, by saying, the Lord is near. And the commentators are divided on this. Is he talking about the fact that Jesus' return is, is imminent? Maybe he means that, maybe he doesn't, but it certainly is true. Jesus could come back today. And when he comes back, where do you, where, what do you want him to find you doing? What place do you want him to find you? I would, I would think you would want him to find you finding your joy in him and letting your reasonable sweetness, your grace be extended to others. But then there's the other sign, and that is that the Lord is near. He's with us. He's right here. And He's giving us the strength to do this. And He's walking with you through the midst of all this. He's helping you to extend that grace. He's helping you to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He's walking with you in this. Both are true. And maybe Paul had both in mind. I don't know. David said in Psalm 73, As for me, the nearness of God is my good. So what a wonderful truth to keep in mind. I don't know what you're going through right now. Necessarily. I know some things people are going through, but I don't know everybody. And everything everyone's going through. But we all have opportunity because of the life in which we live. Because we live in a fallen, broken world. Sinful world. That there's always going to be opportunities for us to say, okay, I can either look at my circumstances, fix my gaze here, I can let these things uh, either find my joy in them when things are going well, or find anxiety, worry, and fear in them when things aren't going well, or I can choose to fix my gaze on Christ, abide in Him, let Him be where I find my hope and my joy, and then His peace will come. I can let this this sweet grace in me come out and affect other people and bless other people. Or I can choose to be negative and self-focused and, and let that come out. You want peace? God says, here's the way you prepare for it. When we don't, there's just no guarantee we're going to get this peace from the Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious, merciful God, thank you that throughout the Scripture, the overwhelming description of you throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament is that you are a, a kind, gracious, God who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That's who you are. God, may we fix our focus upon you. And then let that, as you work in us, as, you, as we submit and abide in Christ and let Christ's life flow in and through us, that, that sweet reasonableness, that grace will, will pour out of our lives.
God, would you do this work in us? Would you help us to do our part? As we find our joy in you and as we let our forbearance be made known. God, would you give us that peace? Thank you. Thank you for allowing us to have a part in this. Requiring us to have a part in this. And I thank you that you are working it out in us. And we're not left to ourselves. Have your way, Lord. Do your work. Accomplish your purpose. As we trust you at your word. We pray it all in Jesus' name.